You're listening to season three of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.27, Footprints in the Sand, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and this week I'm grateful that none of our employees has ever stolen vital recording equipment and run off into the wilds of New York after a fight with a coworker instead of just filing a grievance with HR. But Tom, we're the employees, and HR, and management. Oh yeah. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and my computer broke on Sunday, so it's been an extra tough week. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 431 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, who, I regret to say, have to wait for their shoutouts until my new computer arrives and I can get my records updated. Stay tuned. I also have a correction related to our last episode, 3.26, or My Turn to be Happy. In the research piece on Pan-Africanism, I mispronounced a historical figure's name. It is not W.E.B. Dubois, it is W.E.B. Dubois. A big thank you to our patron Phil for contacting us about it. The haiku contest is over. We are collecting your many, many entries, and we will soon be opening the voting on GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon, where our patron judges will determine the grand champion haiku. So if you're a patron, keep your eyes peeled. And if you're not, then keep your ears open, because we'll be sharing the winners on a future episode. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 29, Runaway Roo, or Roo no Tobo. In lieu of research this week, we're joined by friend of the show and MSB physics consultant Iraj to talk about the battleship duel between Haman's Sadalan and Hayato's Adumla in the prior episode. A quick note before we get started, during the talkback this week I reference some background materials from the Double Zeta setting notes. We know about those thanks to the tireless work of Xeonic Scanlations, who translated some magazine articles published close to the end of Double Zeta, which in turn referred back to information purportedly contained in the setting notes. I will link to them in the show notes, but you should be warned that they do contain some spoilers for the end of Double Zeta, so if you're watching Double Zeta for the first time, maybe stay away for now. And now, let us tune our receivers to radio-free Shangri-La. <laughs> In a place where the barren desert sands, boundless and bare, stretch far away, a small and dusty town clings to life on the edge of an oasis. Into this precarious existence arrives a man. No, not a man. A demon bent on revenge. A transient specter of justice. He is the Lone Survivor! The Lone Survivor! 
with his six-shooter on his hip and his trusty mobile steed, Hamrabi. He stalks towards the town's largest building. Inside... Berkey, give me cola. I swear to the high frontier that if I taste a single fly speck of salt in it, I'll show you the sharp end of my Texas colony toothpick, you hear me? I'm on the shoot, you know what I mean? I do hear you, Mr. Gannon, but I'm afraid I have no idea what you mean. Even as the townsfolk unwind after a long day, two wary eyes scan the street outside. Until... The lone survivor's coming! Everybody run! Hello, Mr. The Lone Survivor, sir. Please, don't kill me. I'm just a humble bartender slash schoolmaster slash telegraph operator. I don't have a family, but I do have an elderly dog who would miss me very much. Oh yeah? Well, that's good, because I ain't here to kill you today. No, I'm here to check my mail. Check your... Oh, yes, of course. I keep all the telegrams back here with the vegetables where no one will ever look for them. Could I just have your name? They call me The Lone Survivor. The Lone Survivor. Okay, sure. Let's see. Uh, Simon Simmons Silicon Succotash Survivor. Ah, here we are. Survivor, there are two messages for you. Let's hear them. Dear Mr. Survivor, stop. Please read this urgent message carefully. Stop. We've been trying to reach you about your mobile steed's extended warranty. Stop. Skip that one. As you wish, sir. Uh, Here's the second one. Mr. T.L. Survivor, stop. It is my great pleasure to invite you to attend the debut of Her Excellency, Hereditary Governor Mineva Lau. Stop. Please do not wear your travel-stained poncho. A tuxedo will be provided for you should you require one. Stop. Sincerely, Herman Korn, Chief of Staff to the Governor. Stop. P.S. I have reason to believe your old enemies in the AEIOU Detective Agency will also make an appearance at this party. Well, looks like this old soul is headed for the capital and destiny. Meanwhile... Oh, Alice, this hotel you've picked is so luxurious. Earth really is a whole different world from the colonies. And is it really true that the Euclida Blex Fora was assassinated in this very bed? I'm sure of it. (gasps) So historic. Oh, look what I just found. Someone slipped these two tickets to the Neo-Zeon debutante ball under our door. Surely this has been a mistake. We should give them to the front desk. Wait a moment. Is that the big party they're throwing at the presidential palace? I know. Let's go and crash the party. But Bethany, we came here for a relaxing spa vacation. Not to mingle with the most eligible bachelors in the whole Earth sphere. But Alice, 
It's been years since we went to a ball together. Please say we can go to this one, please. Oh, very well. Yay! You really ought to have known I can't resist a fancy party. I'm surprised you forgot that about me, sister. Ha, ha, how silly of me to forget that. It's a good thing I brought these two ball gowns. By accident. Elsewhere. Welcome, interstellar travelers, to Thride Z, capital of the League of Free Planets. That was very impressive work, penetrating the enemy blockade. It must have been a very exciting atmospheric entry. Indeed. It was surely my most dramatic adventure yet. The sound of laser guns and wind was omnipresent. If only I could have heard it. That would have been nice, but we didn't have time to buy the sound effects cassette before we escaped. What? What? Zabibi. Zabibi. We heard you escaped from Admiral Evil, but I dared not believe it. You must come with us quickly. Supreme Commander Macon Harm will want to hear your full report immediately. As for the rest of you, I am pleased to invite you to attend a formal ball at Space Princess Miranda's mansion in honor of your great achievements and our desperate struggle to protect the abstract notions of freedom and justice from those nefarious villains fighting to impose different interpretations of those same concepts. We would be honored to attend, won't we, Vale? Yes, sir. And next time on... Radio Free Shangri-La. Hey, Jimmy, I really appreciate all your help getting our new downtown Dakar franchise up and running. These ethnoids should love our authentic Granada-style Luna pizza, don't they? They sure do, Mr. Galbaldi. Back when you had disappeared on the moon, I thought I'd never see you again. I'm real glad you showed back up here looking for work. It's like, uh, eh, Sagama, uh, destiny. Look at me acting all sentimental like a big mama Luke. You still gotta deliver all them pies over the presidential palatial digs for the big cheese Zeon party tonight. And remember, there's the new jingle you gotta sing when you hand over the pies, capiche? Yes, sir. <clears throat> when the moon hits your eye, eat this big pizza pie from Galbaldi's. Hey, bravo, Toto Benny. That's a good set of pipes you got in your gab, Jimmy. Don't miss the crisis of infinite radio drama. And now the recap for Runaway Rue. The tables have turned, and now the Argama is on the run from Haman and her fleet. Since returning to the ship, Judo hasn't moved, and his core fighter still sits on the launch deck with him inside it. The kids from Shangri-La think he's in shock and should be left alone. That's clearly what he wants right now, but Rue is insistent that ace pilots don't mope or wallow. She goes to get him, pushing Pudu aside from where she's guarding the core fighter. When the top of the cockpit swings open, Rue and Pudu are taken aback to see Judo slumped in the seat. The control panels around him cracked and warped, 
and his knuckles red and scratched. Rue launches into a speech, trying to convince Judo to snap out of it, that lots of people fight on and persevere after losing a loved one, that they are at war and he doesn't have the luxury of being able to avoid it, but he can use his anger as fuel for fighting. When he just tells her to leave him alone, she harshly replies, I guess I thought too highly of you. Judo takes off running, but a couple of crew members grab him, worried about what he might do in his current state of mind. Later on, the rest of the pilots are busy with maintenance. Rue, on an upper deck, asks Bicha to throw her a wrench, and with a smirk, he throws it just out of reach. When she scrambles to catch it, she almost falls. Not hesitating to confront him, Rue asks Bicha what his problem is. When he and Mondo tell her she was too hard on Judo, she says they have a warped way of showing their support. What would you know? You're not one of us, Bicha retorts. And the argument devolves into name-calling, pushing, and shoving. Ino breaks up the fight, and a fed-up Rue launches in one of the core fighters. On the bridge, Bright is finally contacted by the Audumla. Their mobile suit team is to launch and defend a Karaba base in nearby Algolea. The ship's alarm sounds, and the crew are ordered to battle stations, but Bright is angry to hear that Rue is already launching and orders the other pilots to hurry and launch as well. A slideshow of pictures capturing Earth's natural beauties plays in Haman's otherwise dark chamber. Haman directs Glemmy to take the Drysen team and capture Karaba facilities, while her forces seize Titan's ones. And Glemmy hopes that the fight will draw Rue. Back at the Argama, Astonaji is surprised to see Judo launching just behind the others. I got tired of being in my room, Judo tells him. But really, he's thinking of a conversation he had with Puru. She had, in a gentle way, pointed out that he was not himself. That this quiet, withdrawn, still behavior isn't who he is. And that in a way, Rue might be right. That fighting can give him purpose and help him keep going. Rue encounters the Dreisen team first and is relieved when El, Bicha, and Mondo show up but her relief turns to consternation and then fear when Bicha and Mondo execute their latest plan, to use Rue and her core fighter as a shield when they fight Glemmy. Bicha grabs Rue's core fighter from the air, holding it in front of the Hyakushiki as he crashes into Glemmy's Bawu and forces it to the ground. He mashes the core fighter's cockpit up to the Bawu so Glemmy can see it's really Rue. Taking advantage of a brief pause in the fighting, Rue hops out of her cockpit and runs away promising that Bicha will pay for this. Glemmy gets out of his own cockpit to go after her and is barely clear of the explosion when Bicha puts a beam saber through the Bawu. Somehow the core fighter gets through unscathed and Rue takes it, flying off into the sunset. When Judo arrives with Ino, El Golea is burning. The others, distracted from the mission by their fight with Glemmy, failed to check the Dreisen team's attack. Once they are all together and focused, they make short work of the attackers, killing some and forcing the others to retreat. Glemmy is left stranded, alone in the desert. As the Gundam team switch to putting out fires, Judo looks down at the death and destruction visited on El Golea and rediscovers his will to fight. I know from our preliminary discussion that we need to have an argument about this episode. Should we just start 
with the most difficult topic? Yes, absolutely. As Tom says, argument. The difficulty is <laughs> uh, the way that we talk about some of these characters. It can start to feel like they're actually people, and like our uh, opinions of these people are the way that we treat these people with our words <laughs> is uh, being called into question or criticized. It's very difficult to have a good talk back if we feel like we're fighting. And so sometimes we will talk through a bunch of stuff beforehand just to like air it all out and be like, okay, we disagree, but that's all right. <laughs> Everyone's fine. And then come back and talk about it all again, feeling a little calmer and more comfortable. No one is judging you for your objectively morally wrong opinions about these characters. <laughs> yeah, we had quite a difference of opinion when it comes to the main character of this episode, which is to say Rue. Rue the runaway. In a lot of ways, this episode felt like a return to early Rue, which is to say the Rue that I find painfully abrasive <laughs> uh, and to be an insufferable know-it-all. Remember the phrase Nina just used, dear listeners, insufferable know-it-all. Hold that in your heads because we're going to come back to that in a little bit. And I think it's important to talk about that because I think it reveals something about the way this episode came together and can help us to understand some of the things that I think went wrong in the creation of this episode. But before we get to that, ideally an episode like this where the group fractures would feel like it came as the result of many different running storylines, many different underlying tensions that we've seen throughout the whole show coming to a head coming into a confluence where they cause a fracturing. And in a very similar situation back in First Gundam, we saw exactly that happen uh, when Amuro deserted the white base. And that happened because his own like internal psychological conflict had reached a boiling point. His tensions with Bright, with the rest of the crew, and with the abstract notion of duty had reached a breaking point. And when those different streams met in episode 17 or 18, we have Amuro Desert. Runaway Rue is a little different because while we did see these tensions early on, they faded into the background. I wouldn't even say that they faded. It felt like they were to some degree resolved. Rue stopped being quite so insistent on putting herself above everybody else. Uh, it seemed like she was being less sort of like actively rejected or held apart from the group. And both sides were working together more consistently and much better uh, to great effect. We've seen them fight as a team several times really well. Yeah, a few episodes ago, we saw Elle and Rue in the desert fighting over interpretations of the map and who was in charge. Was anyone in charge? But the way that that's presented, Rue has become part of the group, like Pudu. And the guys have like a vested interest in deciding what to do about that conflict, right? They're standing there like, oh, should we split them up? Oh, no, we should just let them fight it out. They care about what's happening in a way that they wouldn't if she was irrelevant to them. <laughs> and even beyond irrelevancy, if their feelings then were what they are in this episode, that Rue is an outsider, not part of their group, then there wouldn't have been any question about how do we react to this. Mm -hmm. It would have simply been they're on Elle's side against Rue. So this is a return to earlier portrayals of these characters, and it feels a little disconcerting to feel like that character progression that we saw has been unwound. 
it's not this unified front of the Shangri-La kids who are all telling her to go to heck. It's really just Bicha and Mondo. She and Elle have a disagreement, and they talk that through, and it's a little heated, but there's no... I don't know, that felt like a disagreement between people who respect each other, <laughs> rather than the hair-pulling, shoving fight that she gets into with Bicha and Mondo. And Ino even, like, substantially agrees with her. Yeah, it's a little bit silly for Bicha to hang his hat on her not being from Shangri-La, since the Shangri-La kids themselves do not represent and have never represented a unified front. Each one of them is an outlier in some kind of way. But let us expand for a moment on what the Shangri-La kids all have in common. Absentee parents or no parents or parents who don't care that they went off to war. Uh, growing up in poverty, like having worked, it seems like, from as soon as they could work. And having been friends for a long time and worked together for a long time. It is unreasonable for Rue to think that she can have the same relationship with all of them that they have with each other. Well, sure. <laughs> but it's not unreasonable of Rue to expect them to treat her as a comrade and shipmate. Ah, so this is where, this is one of the points at which Tom and I disagree. Yeah, we, we might have to have a fight about this uh, right now, live on air. We're not live, but <laughs> right now on air. I developed in this episode a, a working theory for Rue's character. What I think the, the central conflict of her character is which also helps me explain part of why she grates on me so much. But it's that she is very much a character caught in between a whole bunch of different statuses and social positions and even like internal attitudes and philosophies and often tries to have it both ways. Tom brought up that it's fair for her to want to be treated as a comrade. I would argue she often shows that she does not want to be treated as a comrade. She shows she wants to be treated as a superior. And then she acts hurt <laughs> when they don't like her. Like, if she really wanted to be their superior, them liking her or not shouldn't matter. And if she really wants to be one of them, she has to stop constantly putting herself above them and putting them down. <laughs> I don't think that Rue would be any more successful with these kids if she were constantly trying to be buddy-buddy with them. Because Rue is caught in between different things. She is a little bit older than them. She is a bit more experienced than them. They are in and have been in these incredibly dangerous, intense situations. Like, a lot of times early on, Rue has known what needed to be done. And when lives are on the line and you're dealing with these children who do not understand how serious things are, and in some cases are actively sabotaging each other, Bicha, I can understand Rue's position. And again, she's like 17. Right. She's uh, a she, kid. She is also a child. But she's a slightly older and more experienced child. And yet not an adult, not in command. She's she's in a difficult position. I'm not even saying that she isn't frequently right. You know, at the very end of the episode, Bright makes comments that echo things that Rue has said throughout the episode. Yeah, this must be really difficult for Bright since just a couple of episodes ago, he and Rue were having a real like bonding moment over the fact that they were both volunteers. They both like believed in AUG and what he, they were doing. He felt like he could trust her. Yeah. And rely on her in a way that he can't on these others. And she mucked it up. This must be really difficult for Bright in a bunch of ways because this is not the first time he's had to deal with this. But we'll talk about that more in a second because I still have more to say about Rue. I also have a working theory of Rue's character, 
And the thing I get from Rue is that I think even before we met her, she was always alone. Rue is isolated and behaves like someone who is accustomed to being isolated. And I think she's deeply insecure. We've mentioned that with her before. Her conflicts with the other women on the crew, with Emery and with Elle and with Fa early on, all reveals this about her. Her desire to put herself above the other Shangri-La kids, as you put it, comes from this same place of insecurity. She's trying to prove herself to them. She's trying to prove her worth to everybody all the time. And part of the reason that I'm so sympathetic to Rue is that this is how I behaved when I was her age. I know exactly how she feels, or at least I'm projecting my memories of those feelings onto this character. And like, yeah, she absolutely is driving a wedge between herself and the other kids. But a big part of the reason she's doing that is because she is being isolated and she's accustomed to being isolated and it hurts to be iced out like that. It hurts really badly and it hurts less if you create those barriers yourself. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in therapy and one of the things that we focused on was learning to understand how my own behavior had perpetuated the negative situation that I didn't want to be in. And not only to understand that and to stop doing those behaviors, but also to learn to forgive yourself for having done them because they were normal and rational responses to the stimuli that I was experiencing, that Rue was experiencing. So is she being a heartless jerk in this episode? Yeah, she is. But I can't help but sympathize with her. And while my notes are full of like, gosh, Rue is such a jerk in this episode. <laughs> if anybody else says it, I'm yeah, coming for you. I was going to say, based on what you've talked about, she would have to do something pretty extreme for you to feel like them ostracizing her is an appropriate response. It's difficult for me. She's 17. I don't expect a lot of self-awareness from a 17-year-old generally. But part of growing up is learning that even if you have good reasons for doing something, if it produces horrible results, like you are the one responsible for fixing that. And Rue has not made that progress yet. And maybe she never will. Who knows? She's 17. I, I know. I'm just so within the show, we are unlikely to see her work this out. Right. But I can't help but be frustrated looking at her frequently contradictory behavior and statements, I want to tell her, like, what is it you want? <laughs> and acting this way is not going to get it for you. <laughs> okay, but try to put yourself in Rue's shoes for a second. And, you know, when you have this group like the Shangri-La kids, like the Gundam team, and then a member of it, like Bicha, does something like when he throws that wrench, right? Which is... Okay, so part of the problem with Double Zeta as a whole <laughs> is that it can never decide what the stakes are. It can never decide when physical danger is actually danger or when it's funny. So we don't actually know whether Bicha, like, throwing this wrench just out of reach of Rue and her sort of scrabbling to catch it and almost falling. We don't know if that's supposed to be funny or if that's, like, Rue's life was in danger. So it's hard to know how much her reaction is to him being a jerk and how much of her reaction is to him trying to kill her the way he has tried to kill other members of the team in the past. And the fact that that's just like an aside as we go through the fact that Bicha has repeatedly tried to kill members of the team is its own whole thing, which we may or may not ever get any kind of real resolution on. Where was I going with this? <laughs> oh yeah, put yourself in Rue's shoes. Let's assume that you want to be part of this group. 
And then somebody like Bicha does something that is so perfectly calculated to demonstrate to you that you are not part of the group. They do not want you to be part of the group. You will never be part of the group. That is the whole purpose of Beach's action here, just to torment her with her outsider status. So one of my core difficulties talking about Rue is I have to ask myself, when I feel these really negative reactions to her behavior, whether or not and how much my reaction is internalized misogyny, we expect women to be likable. We punish women for not being likable. We expect women to be conciliatory and to solve conflict rather than create it. You know, would I be this hard on a male character behaving the same way? I'd like to think that I would, but I have to ask myself the question, right? Am I bothered by her reaction to what I read as Bicha being obnoxious but not dangerous because it feels like an overreaction to me or because... As a woman, I have internalized this idea that men are going to be horrible to you all the time. And most of the time, for your own safety or to keep your job or whatever, you have to ignore it. I don't have an answer, by the way, to how much of my reaction to Rue is internalized misogyny. I assume some. I hope not very much. But the problem with internalized prejudices is you can't really adequately identify them. They just feel natural. We talked about how Rue shifting back more to the way she was previously feels like an abrupt and drastic change. Her running away feels like an overreaction if all that's been happening is what happened in this episode. If there had been a whole number of incidents leading up to this, if there had been constant antagonism, it would make more sense. But given that one of the dichotomies, one of the things Rue is caught in between is childishness and maturity, her constant criticism of everyone else as being childish in their like emotional response and in how they want to treat judo feels a bit rich coming from someone who gets into one argument and then runs away with a piece of important military equipment. In looking at Rue in this episode, I started to think about one of the interesting challenges of analyzing episodic shows the way we do, which is that in our minds, we create constructs of these characters that we use to evaluate whether their actions seem consistent with who they are as a person. And these constructs evolve over time as more things happen. This is how we experience stories. And so we have this mental image of the character as we go into this episode. And the dissonance that we feel as we watch the episode comes from the characters not acting in a way that is consistent with this mental image that we have of them. But when you have episodic shows like this that are being written by different people, directed by different people, and each episode is at least to some degree an independent thing that stands on its own, we can also create a limited construct of the character which exists only within the episode and is based only on what happens within this one episode. And then we have to ask, is the episode internally consistent? Is Rue's decision to run away consistent with her behavior throughout this episode, leaving aside the Rue that we thought we understood coming into it? I don't necessarily have an answer, but uh, that's a different way of thinking about these problems. Some of the other sort of dichotomies that I see Rue caught between in this episode are selfishness versus selflessness, individual interests versus group interests, which for her is, is presented as talking about Ayug itself, being kind versus being harsh, 
it was not lost on me that through most of the episode, she's talking about judo as a tool for Ayug, his development as a new type, as it will be useful to Ayug, his ability to get in the robot and fight because it's useful to Ayug. Which should be contrasted with Puru's approach to judo, where instead of talking about how judo's grief uh, and his mourning process is interrupting his utility, she focuses on how the way he's behaving is not consistent with who he is as a person. Yeah, let's sidetrack for a moment and talk about Pudu. I saw Pudu as a sort of midpoint between what the Shangri-La group wants to do, which is basically leave Judo completely alone, and what Rue seems to want, which is make Judo get in a robot and start fighting immediately, and he shouldn't show any emotion. <laughs> Grieving time is done now. There's a lot of gross, toxic masculinity stuff in there about, mm -hmm. gosh, you're such a baby, grieving your sister who hasn't even been dead 24 hours. Okay, first, it's fascinating that the two characters who take an active role in trying to deal with Judo, deal with his grief, are the two characters who have the least personal connection to Lena. Both Pudu and Rue only ever met Lena, like, you know, a, a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Lena was on the ship with Rue for a little while there, but you know she had known all the Shangri-La kids for her entire life, probably. But also, it's bizarre the way everybody treats mourning as like this weird thing that they'd never heard of before. Like, there's a conversation where I think Elle and Rue are talking about Judo mourning, and Elle is like, oh yeah, Judo feels sad about his sister dying because he's a new type. Why does he need to be a new type to feel sad about his sister dying? Why don't you feel sad about his sister dying? What is wrong with you people? Yeah, she makes some comment about having those feelings at a distance. No, Rue says, even at this distance? What does distance from her body have to do with anything? <laughs> yeah, it's been like an hour or, I don't know, five hours or whatever. It hasn't been very long. Based on the internal logic of the show, Elle might be onto something when she mentions that Judo is feeling Lena's death more keenly than he might otherwise. Because we know that he and Lena had a particularly strong mental connection to each other, if we want to call that new type connection mental. I don't know that that's the best way to put it, but like they could sense each other and communicate to some degree across a pretty wide distance. And so if you imagine that he could feel something about her. He's experiencing loss in the way that any of us would experience the loss of a beloved family member, but with the additional loss of the Lena that he could always feel there in his consciousness that he knew was out there is now also gone. Like that is an additional loss on top of the already horrible and normal loss. And I found it very interesting that only an episode after Lena's death, we don't get a single flashback of her. We don't get a single reference to things that she said. And that despite Rue behaving in a very cold and manipulative manner, she never once says, Lena would want you to live. Pudu never once brings up, Lena didn't just want you to fight for her. She wanted you to fight for space-noid freedom. That felt like an odd choice to me. It feels like she's barely a presence. Yeah, given what their relationships were, you would expect every other member of the Shangri-La gang to also be in mourning. And maybe, 
Beecha and Mondo are throwing themselves into their work in order to avoid having to think about it. People mourn in different ways. And you could accomplish the action of the episode and show these characters mourning in different ways, but they don't. As so often happens in Gundam, a character who has died in the previous episode is practically forgotten. To sort of come back to Pudu and her position, they give her a chance to have that I can be your little sister conversation, but in a more nuanced way. It's very blunt. <laughs> Last episode, in this episode, she's very upfront. Like, I know I'm not Lena. I know I can't really take her place, but I could be like a little sister to you. And when he doesn't respond, she says, is that wrong or is that bad? And he sort of hugs her and that's sweet. Yeah, that was very nice, very and tender. Pudu does this thing where she's like, I think Rue might kind of be right. But it's like very gentle, right? It's not like Rue is right and you need to suck it up. It's like, mm, Rue conveyed her message badly, but some things about what she was saying were kind of accurate, maybe. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> Rue is such a blunt instrument and it ends up feeling manipulative. It's all haranguing him to try and get him to do what she wants, insulting him. Oh, I guess you're not as good as I thought you were. I mean, this is another callback to first Gundam because she does basically the pep talk that Amuro gets when he has his first real breakdown. But Amuro gets it from both Bright and Fra, whereas Rue handles both the uh, not good cop, bad cop, or, but both disappointed cop and shaming you cop. Because in first Gundam, when Amuro refuses to go out, Bright is like, I thought you could have been somebody great. Like Char. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Fra who is like, I'm ashamed of your weakness. So Rue repeats both of those for Judo. They do not have quite the same effect as they did on Amuro. But Rue also does another thing. Rue gives him the Gundam pep talk, which I'm calling it that because it's, it's come <laughs> up over and over again. TM. This is what... <laughs> the Gundam pep talk, TM. Yeah. Because it's what Giren says at Garma's funeral. It's what Sela says at Ryu's funeral. And it gets repeated over and over again. You know, I think Camille says it. This is something that people are always saying when there's been a tragic death in Gundam. And it's take your anger and use it like a weapon. Victory is the greatest tribute that you can give the fallen. Well, and the, and the counterpoint of that, which <laughs> when we got started, this was where I meant to go immediately. And then we got sidetracked. Rue thinks to herself at the very end of the episode that she wants Judo to be able to fight because otherwise he'll die. That if he allows himself to succumb completely to his grief, he will be in danger. And that right now the only way, the only way to keep going is to keep fighting. But she saves her like nicest, tenderest statements for when she's by herself running away. She acts a little bit tender and kind towards him when she first opens the cockpit. And she's like, hey, Judo, come on out of the cockpit. But then she turns on a dime and gets mean immediately. <laughs> because tenderness is weakness and she can't show any weakness. That's why she can only be tender when she's alone. Another point in the internalized misogyny question mark column, of course, being that at the close of the episode, Bright sums up a bunch of what Rue has been saying. And we know that he's right. Which means that a lot of what Rue was saying was right. <laughs> she was just delivering it in a really ineffective way that I did not appreciate. Maybe other people <laughs> did. I don't know. Bright basically says, if we succumb to our emotions now, we will all die. We do not have the luxury of being able to do that. And Judo finishes the episode with this revelation of like, 
because I was moping, Rue left. So it's really my fault. No. It's not her fault. It's not Beach's fault. It's more nuanced than that. Because I was moping, this caused Rue and Beecha to fight and Rue left. That their fighting is his fault. Sure. I just wonder if possibly Judo blaming himself for the predictable consequences of other people's bad behavior might at some point come back to haunt him. I'm not sure whether the show thinks that Judo's realization there at the end is healthy or not. I don't think it is. And I think that the way this episode is positioned within the overall runtime of the show suggests that this is not the final answer. Those uh, trademarked Gundam pep talks always come near the middle of the series because the quest for vengeance is an easy but ultimately incomplete and unsatisfying justification for continued violence. From the beginning, Gundam has had a, a complicated relationship with violence and has had to contend with, on the one hand, wanting to force everyone to grapple with the horrible results of that violence and the many innocent people who get hurt by it. And on the other hand, acknowledging that violence is sometimes necessary and serves good ends. And I don't think the show has ever attempted to reconcile those two positions. No. <laughs> it's just, these things are both true and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And yes. <laughs> and the fact that this answer Judo has come to and the answer being offered by Rue to Judo's quandary is not a complete answer or an ideal one doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. In an ideal world, Judo could be rotated off of the front lines, he could go to therapy, he could be rehabilitated over the course of many years. But what they need right now is Judo to be with it enough to fight and survive. I was distinctly reminded during this episode of what Dr. Shar, our neuropsychology consultant, was telling us about essentially barracks room therapy, about this sort of bare minimum in the field, stitch you back together and send you back out kind of therapy. And that's what judo is getting from a bunch of people who do not actually know how to do it. Yeah. Again, as we saw in Zeta, uh, and arguably even more so in Double Zeta, as a captain, Bright has abdicated any responsibility he has for encouraging group cohesion or mentoring these kids or looking after them in any meaningful way, even when their interpersonal conflicts are causing problems for the Argama, as they do in this episode, not just with Rue running away with a core fighter, but in the fact that they completely bungle their mission to try to protect El Colea because they get distracted by fighting Glemmy and Beecha is busy using Rue as a human shield. Bright's um, ineffectiveness, perhaps, is the best way to describe it, is on display in this episode because there's this bit where we catch him like on the phone with somebody and he's saying, oh yes, we should certainly be treating this Puru girl as a, as a prisoner and no indication whatsoever that that is actually being done on the ship. See, I wouldn't even say ineffective, because to me, ineffective says it's at least being attempted. And <laughs> he's not even trying. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and it, at his best, he seems to be relaying information and running interference for the kids. Earlier, I highlighted that bit about Rue being an insufferable know-it-all, which is both the way Nina described her early on in this podcast, but it's also what some of the characters in the show say about her. However, in this episode, while she can be a bit of a know-it-all, that's not the primary character flaw 
on display. That's not the character flaw that leads to all of the events of the episode. It's actually her callousness, her insensitivity to Judo's situation. She's not really being a know-it-all, she's being a jerk. And it's interesting that the show doesn't mention that, or doesn't characterize her that way. And I think what's happening is this is an episode that in a lot of ways, not just through Rue, but in other things that are said, feels like the barrier between the like setting notes and the character notes that are being given to the writers and what's being said in the episode, that barrier has gotten very thin. And I strongly suspect that in the document that lays out each of these characters' personalities, for Rue, it says she's an insufferable know-it-all. And so that's what gets said about her in the episode. I think this is happening because we have a new writer on the staff. For the first time since the middle of Zeta Gundam, someone other than Endo and Suzuki is writing an episode. This one was written by Kamata Hidemi. And I think that this might be the first time that he was ever tasked with writing an episode of an anime. Wow. Yeah. He had other, like, production assistant roles on other shows before this and would write episodes for other shows after this, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time uh, that he was given the responsibility of doing the script writing. There are some odd little inconsistencies, I guess. They make a point of L noticing how, like, diligent Bicha and Mondo are in this episode. They're horrible to Rue, yes. But they're also hard at work on mobile suit repairs <laughs> and seem to be taking this all very seriously in a way that they haven't necessarily much before, which feels weird. It's like they're taking the Ayug thing more seriously, but also being horrible to one of their shipmates. Judo has the line, no one understands what I'm going through, which feels calculated to make all of us go, hang on a second. No one understands me is such a classic angsty teen line. <laughs> and yet we know he's had less than 24 hours. Based on the facts of the episode, I don't feel as if he's behaving inappropriately. But then to give him that line makes it feel like the show is saying he is kind of wallowing and being whiny. I, like, <laughs> And even aside from things like that, what I noticed in particular was that there's a lot of what feels like just saying the quiet part out loud. Oh, yeah. Just tell us the point of the whole show. <laughs> in the beginning intro narration, Judo says, in every war, children are the victims. I wrote this down word for word because I wanted to know it. It's in any era, children are always the victims of war. And Rue's bit about how countless people have died as a result of bad orders. You brought up L earlier, Ellen and Rue talking about being a new type. Yeah. And L pretty much says explicitly that, oh, the feelings of interconnectedness that humans used to have have been dulled or lost because of overdependence on technology. <laughs> right. Just like spelling it out. Exactly. And that line from Elle deserves special attention, not only because the way it's presented clearly is like, hey, we went down the list of the show's themes and we just decided to like explicate this one and articulate it really clearly for you. Uh, and then take Elle's comment there and plug it back into what we've already seen from the show. And there is this strong spirit of like archaic revivalism, moon moon, all of the African villages that are essentially living free of modern technology. The show has been interested in this for a while, but it's only now that it's just laying its cards out on the table like this. Also, why does Elle know this stuff? Where is she getting this from? Where did Lena get that stuff about cyber new types? Are they reading some sort of magazine? <laughs> the bit that you just mentioned, the kind of 
not quite Luddite, but <laughs> sort of back to nature elements of this show are a break from Gundam and Zeta, where the implication was that going out into space, a process necessarily facilitated by technology, was what was going to allow people to develop these new senses and interconnectedness. Double Zeta is turning around and saying, maybe what that is is something very old that we're trying to get back. I do think there is a deep suspicion about technology baked into the DNA even of First Gundam. It very clearly questions the pursuit of technology for its own sake and the ways in which seemingly all new technological developments get put toward military purpose. Yeah, and Gundam goes real hard on that because you look at these series, and this is something that we've seen a lot through the podcast, the general level of technology is not that different from when it was made, you know, messaging services printed out messages instead of messages being displayed on a screen, Walkmans. Corded telephones. Yeah. Except the weapons, the mobile suits and the guns and the beam sabers and, and the, the battleships. battleships. <laughs> All the technological development in the universal century has gone towards war. With this episode, I found I had the most questions about things like dialogue and then I thought the visual storytelling was great. Torres with his blanket. That there's nobody to run opposite shifts from him, I guess. So he just has to be at his post at all times. And even if he naps there, it's still better than it not having anyone there. And so he just has to be there all the time. Yep. Presumably there are alarms that will go off if they need him. And that says something about the labor relationship on the Argama in general, which reminds us of how all of the kids are both piloting and doing all of the maintenance for their mobile suits, like with a little bit of help from Asanaji and apparently one other mechanic. Which is a huge change from previous Gundam series where there were whole crews of maintenance people. <laughs> the moment when Judo's cockpit opens and both Rue and Pudu are both stunned to see Judo's hands all bashed up from punching his console, punching the controls of his core fighter. And nobody says anything about it. They just show it to us. And we know he was so angry and upset, he just lashed out physically at this equipment to the point where he hurt himself. And that conveys so much emotional information and nobody had to say a word. Or when Puru is trying to cheer Judo up, and the like message from her and from everybody else is starting to get through to him. And the way that's expressed is that we look at his face and we see a, a star field superimposed over it. He's having space thoughts. Or when he's in El Golea and is thinking again about Rue telling him, if you're angry, take that anger and use it to fight. Because he's arrived in the town there's no obvious sign of Ayug's presence there. We've been told that there's a base there, but most of the town is civilians and most of the people being killed are civilians. And he's looking at streets littered with people and he gets a like a facial tick. The cheek under one of his eyes twitches. Well, he's not just remembering, like, take your anger and make it into a sword. He's remembering when Rue was talking about all of the other people like Lena who have died in this war, in other wars, throughout time, for bad reasons. He's seeing the streets full of bodies, and he's seeing Lena again and again and again and again. And then, did you notice, when he and Eno go on the offensive, and they start attacking and driving off those Dreisen, 
Did you recognize the music they play? No. That's Riders in the Sky, which is the theme that plays in Zeta when Camille makes his final attack against... Insert your preferred pronunciation of Jupiter Headbandio's name here. It's ah. the like, righteous vengeance music. Nice. Another great moment of visual storytelling. The first time we see Glemmy report to Haman and she's giving him his orders, she is watching a slideshow of a bunch of plants and beautiful scenery on Earth. I don't think it's an accident that what she's looking at as beautiful representations of Earth does not contain a single human person. I got very strong eco-fascist vibes. Yeah. Also, the artificiality, the distance that exists there, because Haman is on Earth. Right. <laughs> she could at any moment open the blinds to her chamber and look out at actual Earth. And she does at the end of this scene. But she prefers to sit in the darkness and look at these idealized slides of nature imagery, of things that she covets about Earth. Uh, and it's like bright flowers, misty mountains. Though interestingly, I don't know if this was intentional, but her palace on Axis had lots of flowers. And in Zeta, she went to space Switzerland where they had mountains. Artificial mountains, but mountains nonetheless. So these things she's looking at are not limited to Earth, but she covets their Earthness. We've talked before about how she behaves like an exile. She falls into the category of space noids who feels like Earth is her birthright that's been denied her. I'm sure this is not the first time she's watched this slideshow. And the slideshow creates a sense of distance between her and the Earth, between the real Earth and this idealized Earth. And it's that distance that allows her to destroy large swaths of the Earth, cause lots of damage on and to the Earth, because the Earth as it really exists is not exactly the same as the Earth that she covets, that she keeps in her mind. Before we move on from this scene... Oh, though, the, yeah, the big reveal. We, we need to talk about some more weird dialogue. Because Haman throws out a line about how she and Glemmy are related through the blood ties of the Zabi clan. To which I would like to say, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, it's not surprising that the Zabis would try to hold control. I'm a little surprised that they feel any necessity to keep Minerva around as a puppet if they are also Zabis. Plenty of monarchies have gone to cousins, nephews, distant relations based on that blood tie. Yeah. Okay, I have to talk about background materials. Oh, no! Yeah, and I think it's okay to talk about this because it's not really spoilers. The stuff is going to mostly stay in the background except for this one otherwise inexplicable line. But in some versions of the character backgrounds for the show... Glemmy is actually Giran's illegitimate child through some sort of eugenics-y new type breeding program. Going back to his introduction, it's pretty clear that when Glemmy was first introduced, he was not supposed to be this important. He was not supposed to be an elite member of Xeon society, and so I think it's pretty unlikely that he was actually meant to be Giran's weird kid from the beginning. I think this was probably kind of a ex post facto retroactive change to his character to make his importance within Xeon make more sense. And Glemmy has some lines early on about wanting to like live up to the expectations of his mom and dad. 
And the way he talks about them does not make it sound as though he is the product of a new type of breeding program and the son of Giranzabi. But leaving that aside, that still leaves the question of how Haman is connected into the Zabi clan. And here we are going back to the setting materials. And I promise we are all going to finish this explanation groaning, and holding <laughs> our heads and wondering what anybody was thinking. Because according to the information we have about these background materials, Haman is supposed to be the younger sister of Dozel's wife, Zena, which is weird because they don't have the same last name and don't look anything alike. What's worse, though, is that in addition to being her younger sister, Haman is said to have been, again, in these materials, Dozel's lover prior to Dozel marrying the older sister. Now, Haman is 20 in Zeta, which means that when Dozel died, Haman was 12. So I think that is an object lesson in why we should take these kinds of background materials <laughs> with a wandering lake's worth of salt. But as I hypothesized earlier, I think Kamata, the new writer, is looking at these background materials, getting up to speed on the show, getting familiar with the characters, and writing some lines that seem to come directly out of those background materials even when they don't fit the way these characters have been written by the other two more experienced writers so far. Yeah, are, we okay. all, are we all holding our heads and going, what were they thinking? Yes. What I mean, they were weren't. They thinking? I'm, <laughs> I'm reminded of an interview George R. R. Martin gave where he was several books deep in the Game of Thrones series and saying how he deeply regretted ever having described anyone's eye color. <laughs> Right. This was, it was like a horse. <laughs> he had described the eye color of a horse. Oh, I thought he was talking about like human characters because he was saying people were coming up with all these theories about interrelationships, mm. secret interrelationships no, you're based right, on you're people's right. eye colors. It was the sex of a horse. He had identified the sex <laughs> of somebody's horse in one book and then later it was different in another book. And he like And he people got a complained. Lot of <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think it's a similar problem, right? With the addition of adding more authors to the mix. And these setting materials, and they're created with the assumption that they're going to be internal. People aren't really going to see them. There are going to be changes between when they're written and when things go live. They're not canon. They're not true. But when you get a hit, when you get a Gundam, everybody's going to want to see those setting documents. And they're going to want to know all the deep background details. They're going to want to know where Glemmy came from and what these mysterious blood ties are that bind him to Haman and the Zabi clan. And then you publish the setting documents and everybody has to see what was essentially your first draft. Mobile Suit Breakdown is very pleased to welcome back friend of the podcast, Iraj. Iraj is a grad student in physics and has been generous enough to come on the podcast in the past and talk to us a little bit about some of the science questions that come out of episodes of Gundam. Hello, Iraj. Hi, Tom. Hi, Nina. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, uh, all things considered. It's fun to be on yet another episode of the podcast. Excited for tonight's discussion. I think it's been about a year since the last time you came on the program. So would you like to reintroduce yourself to our listeners, to new listeners, to old listeners with bad memories who may not remember you so well? Yeah, of course. I'm happy to do that. 
we all have bad memories, so that's okay. Um, as Nina said, I'm a, a grad student. I'm currently uh, studying physics. Specifically, I study soft matter physics. So that's kind of the science of how squishy things deform and flow and uh, what different types of squishy there are. And specifically, I study living matter. So, you know, the stuff inside your cells and how that stuff squishes around and moves around. And it turns out those are really hard problems, but yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's interesting. But what I really like about coming on this podcast and also just in general, thinking about the science of movies and anime and things like that is it allows you to kind of go back to really basic physics. And I think what's really great about today's problem we're going to be talking about is I think it brings up some some kind of very fundamental questions about how we can answer really difficult questions with very simple principles in physics. Anyway, I don't want to spoil anything. But. <laughs> Well, let's get to it. Uh, we're very excited to hear your thoughts. The topic we have asked Iraj to help us analyze today comes out of the prior episode where a battle is taking place in the harbor of Dakar between Haman's flagship, the Sadalan, and Hayato Kobayashi's massive flying aircraft carrier, the Audumla. And during this battle, Hayato orders the Adumla to fly very close to the surface of the ocean in order to kick up a bunch of spray. And then when Haman orders her ship to fire their powerful main guns, the spray from the ocean surface uh, causes the particles in those beams to be dispersed or uh, something happens and they aren't able to get a direct hit on the Adumla. So we asked Iraj, is it in fact plausible that you could deflect a particle beam using the spray off of the ocean? Nice. That's a that's a pretty great setup for the problem. Well, I am a professional podcaster. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I do this for a living, sir. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, what I think is really cool about this problem is it's it's kind of bringing up one really fundamental question that physicists think about all the time, which is uh, scattering. So scattering is fancy physics words for when things uh, hit each other and go off in different directions, right? So um, something that uh, many listeners might have heard of is uh, physicists like to build things they call particle accelerators. So you might have heard of the LHC over in Europe or Slack at Stanford. And these are these devices which take particles and they make them go really, really fast so that they have a lot of energy and then they hit them against one another and the particles essentially explode into a shower of all sorts of other types of particles and they go in all sorts of interesting directions and uh, you can use the directions in which the particles go, their masses and what the resulting, you know, uh, I guess sh shrapnel almost is, uh, you can use that to test the laws of physics and, you know, in the case of LHC and Slack and things like that, you're doing these experiments with fundamental particles, really tiny particles, and you're making them go almost at the speed of light. So they have immense amounts of energy. It only just now occurred to me why they call it the Large Hadron Collider. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah. Because you're shooting them at each other to create collisions. Exactly. Yeah, collisions are really interesting, right? There's a, a really cute uh, comic I saw once of two cave people are kind of talking to each other. And one of them is like, I think rock is made up of smaller rocks. And the other one says, I think rock is fundamental object. And then they go go to the collider and they ro roll rocks down a hill to like hit each other and they break into <laughs> smaller pieces. 
one of them is like, we need to keep doing this with the smaller pieces. And like the bottom of the comic is like prehistoric physicists or something like that. <laughs> um, nice. So, yeah, so anyway, hitting stuff against one another is a really easy way to understand what stuff is made up of. That's why physicists are really interested in collisions and scattering, but also because scattering comes up uh, in the case of waves too, right? As we all know, waves and particles are actually the same thing. Um, and uh, I don't know if we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's become a physics meme, I guess, but uh, maybe it's not common knowledge. Um, so scattering, you can also think about the scattering of like waves off of materials, right? So the waves of water coming onto a surf and like how they scatter off of different um, objects that are in the way is like a important problem, right? People study how the tides come in and civil engineers need to like design shores and things like that with these kinds of things in mind, right? So scattering, important. Um, so why do I talk about scattering so much? Because that's exactly what's happening with this beam. The question in this episode is that, you know, you have this beam that's coming from a cannon. We don't really know what the beam is made up of. Well, we kind of know, but uh, we don't know how fast it's going. We don't know how hot it is, all of that. And we see this other ship, you know, hides behind this spray of water and somehow the spray deflects the beam. And what what is deflection but scattering, right? So uh, we have to kind of ask the question of, is it even possible for water spray to deflect a beam of particles, right? So that's the setup. And Scattering, very complicated, especially when you're talking about, you know, LHC and Slack and stuff. People are fundamental physicists spend a long time calculating these things. But at the, you know, at the macroscopic scale, macroscopic being, you know, big, visible to the eye scale, mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. don't have to worry about things like quantum mechanics. We don't have to worry about, uh, you know, things going close to the speed of light or anything like that. Um, especially because Tom was kind enough to send me a piece of text that kind of provides more context about um, these mega particles, uh, which are what this beam is made up of. And uh, we know they're massive particles and we know they're not electrically charged. That isn't going to be really important, but the massive part is because massive particles are, it's really difficult to get them to go close to the speed of light. So it's probably not going that fast. So we can kind of do scattering in the classical sense. I, I should point out that we can see these beams being fired. Uh, and while, of course, there is some artistic license, it being a TV show, um, they're definitely not traveling anywhere near the speed of light. And firing the beams emits visible light. So you can think of that in a few ways, but um, I think one thing I'm going to try to do here is like connect this you know, beam of kind of mystery particles back to intuition we're definitely going to have from normal kind of guns and cannons and things that we have in real life. Because... At the end of the day, massive objects that go slower than the speed of light are all kind of the same, right? <laughs> Even if you're not shooting lasers, you're often going to get light that is emitted when you are firing something at really high energies, really high speeds and high temperatures, right? Which is mm -hmm. how guns work. Like muzzle flashes are a thing. So the fact that the beam emits light, it, you can see maybe the particles like really hot or they like interact with the air in like some complicated way. But at the end of the day, it's not going close to the speed of light. It's made of massive particles. It's like shooting a really big gun. And so that makes this analysis a lot easier. Physics gives us two really useful tools that we can use in scattering problems like this. The first one, and this is the most important one, is conservation of momentum. The example people always think of with this is things like bowling balls or billiard balls, right? Because those are very simple scattering problems when you have a 
large hard object that hits another large hard object. Um, there's a quantity you can define for any moving object that has mass called momentum. And it's just the mass of that object times its velocity, right? And if I, in any system, as long as it's, you know, kind of well-behaved in certain ways, uh, as long as it's in, a, in like a not special space where you have special forces that are coming from weird directions, which definitely is not the case in this uh, movie. Because we're on Earth, we know exactly where we are. Exactly. Yeah, it's like in the real world. But, you know, usually you have this thing called conservation of momentum. And what it basically tells you is that if, you know, at the beginning of some process, whether it's scattering or whether it's, you know, something exploding or whatever it is, I can add up the momentum of all the pieces of my system and uh, I can do a full accounting. And then at the end of any process I'm interested in, I should be able to do the accounting and get exactly the same number. And that's really awesome because it means that if, for example, I start with something that's entirely at rest, say like I have a bomb that's sitting on the ground and then it explodes, I can tell you, even though I know nothing about what that bomb is made up of, if I take every single piece of shrapnel that comes from the bomb, I measure its speed and I measure its mass right after the explosion, all of the, if you make sure to account for the different directions, so in one direction it's plus and one direction it's minus the speed, um, then if you add it all up, you'll get a total momentum of zero because you started with momentum of zero. And that's extremely powerful because it allows you to predict things without knowing all sorts of details about how the system is behaving. So, you know, I was thinking about this problem for like a little while. Um, <laughs> and I think... Sorry and or you're welcome for inflicting that on you. I No, I love being distracted by uh, interesting little problems like this. Um, it's much more fun than research. Uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I think this is enough to answer the question because if you think of this as the gun that the ship is firing has to be transmitting momentum on a scale that's kind of comparable, if not much, much larger than a typical like gunship. Right, like if I'm trying to do damage to another boat with massive particles, I'm gonna have to shoot enough of them fast enough that they just like are carrying a lot of momentum, and that's how I'm gonna you know do damage to the hull of the other ship, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of that simple. And then spray water spray is just like not heavy; it doesn't move that fast. The total momentum from that whole spray is gonna be much much smaller than the momentum of this incoming beam, right? So really no matter how the little interactions inside the beam interacting with the spray are, no matter really what those details are, it's only going to be like a very small perturbation to like the total momentum coming from this beam. And so I feel like it should stay unperturbed. It's kind of like, basically all I'm saying is this beam is the same as shooting a really big gun. And if you shot a really big gun, you wouldn't expect a spray to really affect it in any way. I do wonder, um, since this show came out in the mid 80s, if this is maybe based off of like a layperson's understanding of like light refracting through something hmm. and, and that that's what they're sort of going for. We just now know that that's not how that works. <laughs> that's actually really interesting. So I was thinking about that for a bit. So it's like, okay, let's take a different version of this problem. Let's say this gun is not shooting massive particles. Let's say it's a laser, right? Um, then you actually end up with a similar problem. I haven't thought this all the way through, but 
lasers, light actually has momentum too. So if I shoot a laser mm. uh, that's extremely powerful, there'll be recoil, actually. The issue is most lasers that we see and use every day just like don't emit that much momentum. They're just not that powerful. Um, and so if I have a laser that's powerful enough to do damage to a ship, then it's kind of the same story okay. again. Mm -hmm. Another thing you could think about is, okay, maybe the way the laser does damage to the ship isn't through like momentum, through like, you know, shocking it with an incoming wave, right? Um, which is what a really high power laser would be doing, I guess. You could imagine something more like the army has these weapons, which are just like essentially a really big microwave uh, like emitter. It's like mm -hmm. a, they have these satellite dishes on like trucks and they use it to disperse crowds and things. I think it like essentially emits just heat or like microwaves, which convert into heat when they touch water molecules. And so this would be really contrived and like a really <laughs> dumb weapon design. Like they, I don't think this is what's going on in this case, but if you could have some kind of like very collimated, concentrated beam of like microwaves, then maybe the idea is we're not gonna like hit this ship with a gun. We're just gonna like keep it in our sights and like heat it up slowly over time, right? If that was the goal, then maybe because that's at any given point, there isn't that much momentum transfer happening, then maybe a spray of water could deflect those beams, especially actually if it's microwaves, those interact really strongly with water. So maybe, um, but again, like no gun, that's a really dumb thing to put on a <laughs> gunboat. Like you want something on a gunboat that like quickly does damage to the hull of another ship. Cause you know, when you're on a ship, you don't know how long someone else is going to be in your sights. So you want to just like shoot them. Right. And mm -hmm. so yeah. there you need a high momentum weapon. Again, this is all like futuristic stuff. So it's at least more powerful than, you know, the guns we have on ships nowadays. Like we have observed the effects of weapons like this one. I don't think we've seen this one hit anything yet, but uh, there is definitely um, impact holes get punched in armor plating, um, but there's also some melting that does happen. Mm. There's definitely a high heat component, but it's also right. conveyed very quickly. Yeah. that that That's interesting. Um, yeah, so the heat thing you mentioned, Tom, uh, I think brings me to kind of the last piece of this, which is it's not just momentum that's conserved. Uh, there's another very powerful law of physics, which is conservation of energy, which people might have heard of. Um, I would say that's, as far as popular laws of physics go, maybe it's more popular. I don't know. I clearly have a very skewed view of what normal people know about physics. Um, <laughs> so conservation of energy is a little more slippery um, when it comes to scattering or just in general, because conservation of energy basically says that if I have a system where it's got time translation symmetry. So I can kind of roll my movie backwards and forwards and the system doesn't fundamentally change in any way. Then and the total amount of energy in the system has to be the same. Um, now in scattering, this isn't necessarily true because things can get deformed and change, right? So going back to like, when you talk about like billiard balls hitting one another or bowling balls, the reason people really like these examples is because there's no deformation happening. Mm -hmm. And so you do have conservation of energy. Billiards is a fully solvable physics problem. You don't need to introduce any new details because you know energy is always conserved. In this case, usually in the case of, you know, 
any kind of weapon. The whole point being to do damage, energy isn't conserved, right? But you can be kind of smart and try to figure out where the energy is lost. And so, you know, you could think of the worst case scenario where maybe this this beam, what, what it basically has going for it is just that it's really hot and it's like not actually going that fast and it's not that, like, there's not a lot of mass in it and it's not actually about impact, it's about just like melting its target. It's not microwaves, it's like particles, but they're just like really hot. And there, something interesting that could happen is instead of reflecting off of the water in the spray, which reflecting is the same momentum conservation thing, because reflection is just actually physically the same as a billiard ball bouncing off of an object. It's just a wave instead of a particle. But you could think of, oh, what if this beam goes into the spray and just like evaporates all of the water? And that absorbs a lot of energy. Evaporating water is very energetically costly. So you could imagine if you have a beam uh, that's entirely heat based and somehow it's just right so that all of its heat gets you know transmitted into the spray and the spray all evaporates maybe that would reduce the power of that beam but then i remembered again if you're going to use this beam against a ship it has to be able to <laughs> melt like a steel hull or something which is mm -hmm. definitely much more energetically expensive than evaporating any spray of water. Mm. So either way, I think even if you think about, you know, a lot of energy being lost in the process, I feel like you can't you can't get it to work. At the very most basic level, it seems like while we don't know the specific parameters of this beam, for it to be a threat to a warship, it would have to be either hot enough or heavy enough or fast enough, or some combination of the three of those, that practically no amount of water spray would be enough to meaningfully affect it. Yeah, precisely. I think there's a, if you just take a step back, there's a very simple way of seeing this. It's like a beam, a weapon is a way to transmit energy and momentum from one object to another in such a way that you're going to significantly deform the other object and like damage it somehow, right? And so the laws of physics tell us that because of conservation of momentum and to some degree energy, that only things with a comparable amount of momentum and energy to this weapon itself are able to deflect this weapon, right? Because again, momentum has to be conserved. So I can't just like take a really large amount of momentum, add a tiny thing to it, and somehow deflect the whole thing. Um, all these numbers have to be comparable to one another. So if I am to significantly deflect this beam, I'm going to need something that is comparable energy and momentum to this beam. And a spray of water isn't comparable to this beam, because if it was, then sprays of water would be damaging these ships left and right. And that sounds like a really terrible ship. So. <laughs> There's kind of this useful idea of like, you just need to like think about the different energy scales in your system, right? Like mm -hmm. ships and beams and weapons are like just a higher energy object than sprays of water are. And that's what makes ships resistant to sprays of water in a sense. This is a very like distant view of mechanics, but it's a, it's, it can be kind of useful to think about it this way. So to go back to a metaphor you shared with us earlier, this would be a little bit like if somebody was chucking a bowling ball at you, and you tried to defend yourself by tossing a handful of ping pong balls at it. Yeah, precisely. I feel like if you had enough ping pong balls, maybe, right? Like if there was just like a, I don't know, some kind of a tsunami 
immensely, <laughs> like instantly was just brought into this scenario. Maybe that could deflect the beam. I don't know. That That's a different story. If they did mm. a whole, uh, what's the name of the character in The Lord of the Rings who summons that immense wave suddenly? Um, oh, oh, <laughs> she summoned like the horses made out of water. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Very early on in the first movie. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So if they did something like that, then, then yeah, man, maybe. But that's I mean, not what I saw in the screenshots you showed me. <laughs> sure. We are talking here about a very, very large aircraft. It could theoretically kick up a considerable amount of water, but it doesn't sound like that would be on the scale that we're talking about here. Well, yeah, because again, if you're talking about a really large aircraft, then the gun is also really, really large. Mm -hmm. right? It's all about relative scales. So I can just zoom in and out, and it's kind of the same problem. One of the things I love about this kind of physics problem, uh, I was always a bit intimidated by physics. It involved a lot of math, and I was not very good at math, and uh, just was not into it. But there are some physics problems that just come down to like simple, logical principles. <laughs> yeah. You didn't have to do any math to say, well, if this beam is going to hurt this ship, it must be stronger <laughs> than this spray of water. That's the thing. and. Uh... It's a kind of a big question, I think, when people talk about physics education, where, you know, a lot of the time students get turned off by the math and the technicalities. There's very much like multiple schools of thought on this, where some people think like, unless you're able to really turn the crank and use the tools, then you don't really understand what's happening. And I think, you know, if you're trying to train scientists, that that's true. What does get lost in all that is the fact that, you know, physics education, one of the things it gives you too is these very broad strokes and um, kind of global ways of looking at how things work and being able to guess surprising amounts of detail without knowing a whole lot um, based on these like fundamental principles. The critical thing that, that physics gives you is it just like kind of tells you what is important and what isn't. And so you know what pieces of information to throw away and which ones to keep. And that's, uh, yeah, that's really powerful. That's like essential to solving any problem. <laughs> What's relevant? <laughs> yeah, like the real world is just infinitely complicated. And unless you know what to look for, you're never going to, you know, find the patterns that scientists are interested in. Going at this from a kind of a pedagogical perspective, it is a really hard problem to think, how do we, is it even possible to teach someone this aspect of the science without going into the nuts and bolts and the painful parts? I'm personally of the mind that, you know, at the level where someone's, you know, like a student of the discipline, like that's pretty much impossible. But I really wonder if we, if we just need to do a whole lot better in our physics science education. And instead of just talking about how crazy black holes are and what happened in the first like 10 picoseconds of the universe, that maybe we should be just talking about billiard balls and conservation of momentum. And people will be like, oh, wait, that totally makes sense. It just gives you a way to understand all these like really basic things. And in fact, conservation momentum is something that people use um, in places like if you go to court for like a traffic accident and you're trying to prove that someone, you know, hit somebody else in a specific way, that's a scattering problem. Mm -hmm. There are like actual cases of people who go into these scenarios and they can prove, you know, whether or not they... They acted a certain way based on this very small amount of evidence and knowing, you know, something like conservation of momentum. I mean, that's kind of what forensic scientists do, actually. So anyway, uh, all of that to say that, yeah, 
there's a lot of these basic principles that are very useful that we aren't taught. And we're just taught, oh, no, physics is just about like doing really complicated quantum mechanics. You wouldn't like it. <laughs> and people just don't know it, which is a shame. Thank you for helping us spread the love of physics around the world. Always. Uh, at least to listeners of Mobile Suit Breakdown. We're very pleased to have you. Now, I do have to ask you one more question, which is hypothetically. Now, I know this is somewhat unlikely, but just hypothetically, if at that very moment when the uh, Aldumla is kicking up all that spray, if a large number of massive uh, aquatic creatures were to leap from the ocean <laughs> in a coordinated <laughs> maneuver uh, and intercept the beam that way, and we don't see them because the spray is concealing their movements. Could that hypothetically have diverted the beam? Tom, I think your dolphin-based defense system is highly unethical. I, uh, they are sacrificing themselves. They are not being compelled to do this. I no, I think you know this is an important question, and you we have to go back to our fundamental principles. Are these animals of comparable, you know, momentum and energy to the ships? And you know. If it was a huge like blue whale kind of a situation and there's a bunch of them for some reason, although I don't think those are, they form <laughs> herds, but let's say they do, then maybe, you know, why not? Yeah, how many how many dolphins are equivalent to the Audumla? <laughs> Listen, Nina, your disrespect for new type dolphins is becoming a serious problem. <laughs> My disrespect? You're the one who wants them to sacrifice themselves for our human conflicts. Yeah, because I respect and appreciate their sacrifices in the name of protecting the earth. So what I'm what I'm hearing here is that Gundam has been affirmed. It is possible. <laughs> Wait, is this a thing that happens? It clearly happened in this oh, episode. You, no. It's the only way that the Aldumla could have been saved. Right, and it was saved, therefore. Therefore. Because Gundam is truth. When you eliminate the impossible, the implausible, no matter how unlikely, must be true. That's actually a very good quote. I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> you can thank Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And we would like to thank you, Iraj. Oh, thank you. thank you for coming on the program again. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We feel very educated. We can't wait to have you back. I'm sorry that this last this last year, <laughs> some events that aren't worth mentioning kind of got in the way. But thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I miss being able to record these in person. It was so much easier in every way. Yeah, except for that part where I spilled. A bunch of water on your laptop that one time. Oh, yeah, that was you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're safer from my clumsiness this time around. Well, he already forgot about it, so clearly <laughs> it's not that important. Well, he also made me introduce myself, and I have uh, no evidence that it wasn't just because he forgot who I was. So. Next time on episode 3.28, Blue Bloods, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 30, and that's just Amuro in the desert looking for oil. Rue has one trick, but it's a good one. The buck stops with Astonaji. I'm not normal, I'm a genius. Never follow an artist to a second location. Rue ruse her ruse now that she's a muse. Early warning, Pudu. Don't hate me because I am beautiful. And a couple of messy blondes brawling in a bar. You will see the battlefield of new types. 
you'll see the battlefield of blonde types. Heyo! Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Glemmy is actually the genetic clone of Slager Law, and I can prove it, in this seven-hour YouTube video essay. But first, a word from our sponsors, Casfall Mattresses. Casfall makes the best mattresses in the Earth sphere, and they're affordable too, because Casfall cuts the middleman in half with a beam saber to offer you the lowest prices on mattresses and mattress accessories. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion is from an anonymous fan. Thank you, anonymous fan. And thank you for listening. Heck, I believe, is one of the colonies inside four. I hate the phrase devil's advocate, so I'm not going to use it. Satan's buddy. Lawyer. Um, Interlocutor. All right. (laughs) All right, now, Tom. (laughs) Sorry, are you... (laughs) Are you upset? I'm a little upset. Okay. I'm going to work through it. Okay. So you talk about that as if it's never happened to me. <laughs> you talk about like. So you talk about like. Ah, beeping noises. I do not want you to talk about misogyny. No. Those, uh, what did I call it? The Gundam pep talk? Yeah. <laughs> it feels like they always have characters dessert in deserts. I wonder if they're doing that as a pun. Probably. Or if it's just because of the like isolation and how inhospitable deserts are. I'm not attacking you. I, I don't know. You did say I was wrong just now. <laughs> Although, if you are working at an unpaid internship where they don't respect you, stealing some heavy equipment and quitting, I think is a morally defensible course of action. We don't know that none of them have been paid. No, we. in fact, we actually do know that they are getting paid, just not very well. And she was a volunteer! <laughs> I kid. Wow. Yeah. You are we all, are we all holding our heads and going what were they thinking? Yes. Which might be a good place to stop and we have been talking for 90 minutes. <laughs>
Yeah, we talked a lot. This is going to be brutal. Yeah, it is. Um, Don't hate me because I am beautiful. That's not why we hate you. You hate me? I don't hate you, but you hate Rue. I don't hate her. I don't like her. Hate is an awfully strong word. 